Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. This Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on a shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcasts, or it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, NHK World Radio Japan, Radio Havana Cuba, and France 24. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. At the United Nations Climate Conference, or COP27, a deal was reached to create a fund to help developing countries with the devastating effects of climate change, mainly caused by richer nations. The details of who will pay and how much have not been established. And there was almost no progress on reducing carbon or the phasing out of fossil fuels. The deadly crackdown on protest in Iran is getting attention from the United Nations. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. The COP27 climate talks in Egypt now, and there's elation over a landmark compensation deal that's been, however, tempered by disappointment over progress on cutting emissions and fossil fuels. Let's take a look at what the summit did and didn't achieve. Now, there was no agreement on phasing out fossil fuels anytime soon, but delegates did, however, reaffirm a commitment to the goal of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's above pre-industrial levels. And there was a historic loss and damage deal that will compensate vulnerable nations suffering from climate change. It's a historic deal, thrashed out by exhausted delegates after weeks of negotiations at the climate talks in Egypt. Today, here in Sharm el-Sheikh, we established the first ever dedicated fund for loss and damage, a fund that has been so long in the making. The fund would pay poorer nations on the front lines of climate change, dealing with destruction and death from extreme weather. Developing countries have contributed the least to heat-trapping emissions that are causing temperatures to increase worldwide. Nations like Pakistan, where floods have killed hundreds this year alone, have been campaigning for this compensation for decades. The establishment of a fund is not about dispensing charity. It is clearly a down payment on the longer investment in our joint futures. It is a down payment and an investment in climate justice. But as some delegates celebrate, crucial details are still unclear, like exactly which richer countries will pay into the fund and how much. And there was little progress on tougher cuts to carbon emissions, the gases produced by burning fossil fuels that are driving climate change. Europe is among the big emitters, 
and Germany has pledged to cut its emissions, but warned that other top polluters aren't doing the same. It's more than frustrating to see overdue steps on mitigation and the phase-out of fossil fuels prevented by some major emitters and oil-producing countries. As a result, the world loses precious time towards the path of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees. A sentiment shared by many delegates leaving the conference. And DW's environment editor Ajit Naranjan joins me now. We're hearing that this deal is widely being called historic. Is it really, though? It is a historic deal. This is the first time after decades of these climate conferences and negotiations where poor countries have got rich countries to agree to set up a place where they can put money to pay for the damages done by having burned fossil fuels disproportionately, heated the planet, made all these heat waves worse, these coastal floods and tropical cyclones stronger. But as we just heard in the report, the big question is how much will actually go into it, who'll pay, who'll get the money. And all of these questions have kind of just been kicked down the road. But I think campaigners and particularly delegates from the poorer nations who have kind of been crying out for this, they're happy to even have just got this on the table and agreed on. Okay. Now, um, developed nations left this conference not particularly happy about a lack of progress in cutting emissions. How big a setback is that? The time window for acting is just tiny. So the last intergovernmental panel on climate change report earlier this year said that there's a rapidly closing window of opportunity to kind of ensure a a safe and sustainable future, a livable and sustainable future for all. That time limit means that every year that we carry on burning fossil fuels and not even having peaked that curve of fossil fuels, every year we're burning more and more and more and more. And until we quickly reduce them, we're not going to get there. So this agreement, it talked about phasing down unabated coal power. It did not mention oil or gas, two of the other big fossil fuels that are burning. Uh, so, I mean, it seems that there is progress being made at these talks. And yet, you know, we've had 27 of these um, climate summits. Are they really proving their worth? Is there, would there be a better way of trying to get agreements on these issues? There could definitely be better ways. If you look at a graph of how much the CO2 emissions are climbing and climbing and climbing and the concentrations in the atmosphere, the temperatures, and then you think we've had 27 of these, it kind of feels like nothing's happening. The big question is what would happen if we didn't have these conferences? And so what's very clear is that world leaders feel under pressure to show that they care about climate change, that they're doing something about it. It gives kind of the poorest countries in the room a voice to actually speak about things. I mean, countries like Tuvalu or places where sea levels are just rising so high that homes are getting washed away. These are tiny countries with small populations, small GDPs. Like, they're not places where people really across the rest of the world seem to care about. And so when they are in these negotiating halls, for once they do have a voice and they can speak as a united voice in some cases. And as we've seen with this fund to pay for the compensations for the damages of climate change, sometimes they do see concrete successes. Mm -hmm. All right. Ajit Naranjan, thank you so much for that. The United Nations has denounced the increasingly harsh crackdown on mass protests in Iran and its Human Rights Council is considering investigating the government's violence. Human rights groups say more than 400 protesters have been killed since the start of nationwide demonstrations in Iran in mid-September. Not many images are coming out of Iran at the moment. 
but videos on social media show scenes resembling a civil war in several Kurdish cities. These areas have seen daily protests since the death of 22-year-old Gina Masa Amini in police custody. Eyewitnesses say every week brings more brutality from security forces. They say heavily armed military personnel have been sent to Kurdish areas from other parts of the country and that live ammunition is being used against demonstrators. We urge the authorities to address the people's demands for equality, dignity and rights instead of using unnecessary or disproportionate force to suppress the protests. Iran's football team showed their solidarity with protesters on Monday. Despite potentially severe consequences, they remained silent as the Iranian national anthem was being played before their World Cup match against England. Still, many in Iran say the action was too little, too late. The players faced criticism for visiting President Ibrahim Raisi before departing for Qatar. On social media, the national team, known in Persian as Team Meli, was mockingly renamed Team Mullah. Many Iranians feel that the World Cup in Qatar will divert attention away from the protests in Iran. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. Next, NHK World Radio Japan. Japanese Defense Forces launched a new interceptor missile from off the coast of Hawaii on Monday. United States Vice President Harris and Philippine President Marcos Jr discussed adding five military bases in the country, despite the Philippine Constitution banning foreign bases. The UN Security Council discussed the latest North Korean intercontinental ballistic missile. North Korea says it is a response to increased U.S. sanctions and military activity in the area. In Taiwan, significant local elections are being held this Saturday. NHK Japan Japan's Maritime Self-Defense Force has successfully test-fired a new interceptor missile from one of its Aegis-equipped destroyers. Defense Ministry officials said on Monday that the standard missile 3 Block 2A was test-fired for the first time last week from the destroyer Maya off Hawaii. They said the missile intercepted an intermediate-range ballistic target launched from a U.S. military facility outside the atmosphere at an altitude of over 100 kilometers. The ministry has spent about $780 million on joint development of the missile with the U.S. It says the missile can cover an expanded altitude and range. That makes it possible to respond to a ballistic weapon fired on a so-called lofted trajectory at a steeper launch angle than usual. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris and Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. have discussed increasing the number of bases their countries share in the Philippines. Harris and Marcos met on Monday in Manila. The expansion on the table is based on a military deal the two countries signed in 2014. A senior Philippine military official says the U.S. side proposed five locations, they include the Palawan Islands on the edge of the disputed South China Sea. We stand with you in defense of international rules and norms as it relates to the South China Sea. An armed attack 
on the Philippines' armed forces, public vessels, or aircraft in the South China Sea would invoke U.S. mutual defense commitments. These uh, partnerships become yeah. uh, even more important. Uh, the, the situation is rapidly changing. Uh, we must uh, evolve uh, to be properly responsive uh, to that uh, situation. The Philippines' constitution bans foreign bases, but the country has been allowing the U.S. military to build facilities and stockpile supplies at designated bases based on the military deal. The talks come as Beijing continues to build artificial islands for military bases. Washington is also believed to have in mind a contingency involving Taiwan. The United Nations Security Council has discussed North Korea's latest launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile. The U.S. argues the weapon, which is capable of reaching all of North America, poses a new threat. But diplomats are struggling to respond with one voice. Members say the missile could be North Korea's largest and most powerful yet. They gathered for an emergency meeting to figure out how to react. For too long, the DPRK has acted with impunity. It has conducted escalatory and destabilizing ballistic missile launches without fear of a response or reprisal from this council. Thomas Greenfield criticized diplomats from China and Russia of enabling and emboldening the North Koreans. She says their blatant obstructionism puts the entire world at risk. The U.S. should take the initiative, show sincerity, put forward realistic and feasible proposals, respond positively to the legitimate concerns of the DPRK. Jiang says other countries should stop military exercises around the Korean Peninsula and ease sanctions against the North. The meeting hasn't gone down well in Pyongyang. Leader Kim Jong-un's younger sister accuses the Security Council of double standards and describes the U.S. as a barking dog seized with fear. In a statement, Kim Yo-jong says the UNSC has turned a blind eye to recent U.S.-South Korea joint military drills. She accuses Washington of driving the situation on the peninsula to a new phase of crisis. And she insists the U.S. cannot deprive the North of its right to self-defense. People in Taiwan are set to vote in local elections on Saturday. The contests are widely seen as a test for Taiwan's main political parties ahead of the race for president in 2024. A total of 22 mayors and governors will be elected. Seven incumbents are from the ruling Democratic Progressive Party. Fourteen are with the largest opposition party, Kuomintang. Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen says managing the tense relationship with China is key to the vote. The whole world will be closely watching our first elections following the Chinese Communist Party's National Congress. Kuomintang candidates recognize Beijing's One China principle. But the party's leader has avoided the contentious issue during the election. It is our party that loves Taiwan the most. Our most important mission is to protect democracy 
and freedom. Kuomintang wants to secure more than half of the mayoral posts in six major cities, including Taipei. Analysts think that could impact President Tsai's power base. Vote counting will start after the polls close on Saturday. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 8.30 to 9 p.m. at 9865 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. They are also available as a podcast at most podcast sites. All the times I announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. Brazilian President-elect Lula da Silva visited Portugal and warned that Bolsonaro's right-wing supporters remain a threat to peace. Three years ago, there were massacres in Bolivia following a coup that ousted Evo Morales. It was led by Janine Añez, and there have been no charges brought forward for the murders. Radio Havana, Cuba. The President-elect of Brazil, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, warned Saturday in Portugal that despite his victory in the last elections in the South American country, the extreme right that supports the outgoing president, Jair Bolsonaro, is still present and must be defeated through peaceful means. Lula da Silva held a meeting at the University Institute of Lisbon with the Brazilian community in an event organized by the core of the Workers' Party, the PT. The elected president, who takes office on January the 1st, said that Bolsonaro is still alive and we have to defeat it. We do not want persecution or violence. We want a country that lives in peace. He called on the defeat of Bolsonarismo without using against them the methods they use against the left. During the meeting, the president-elect stressed his commitment to Brazilian education in the face of the disaster in the matter in Bolsonaro's administration. In addition to referring to the situation of millions of Brazilians who go hungry, a situation that should not happen because the South American nation is the third largest food producer in the world, Lula expressed that he will reverse the situation and blame the outgoing president for not guaranteeing access to food. The meeting takes place after the leader's visit to the COP27 summit held in Egypt, being his first trip to Lisbon after his election as president. The Brazilian president-elect was received by the president of Portugal, Marcelo Rebelo de Sousa, and by the prime minister, Antonio Costa, as a symbol of the resumption of relations weakened during Bolsonaro's mandate. Marisol Rodriguez, the president of the Sencata Victims Association, has demanded justice for the Bolivian government so that events in this South American nation during the 2019 coup d'etat do not go by with impunity. Three years after the massacre that occurred in the town of El Alto, relatives of the victims participated in a ceremony of remembrance and demanded that the perpetrators be criminally prosecuted. Marisol Rodriguez stressed that the relatives are, quote, asking for due process and investigation of those authorities, military and police, who violated their rights. Rodriguez recalled that four days earlier there had been a massacre in Sacaba, Cochabamba, which left 11 dead and 120 wounded. 
The president of the Sankata Victims Association regretted that, quote, after three years there is yet impunity. Mrs. Aeneas has not received a process for the murders and wounding of 2019. She is in jail, but is for another case. What we ask is that they speed up the case for Sankata and a fair investigation. On November the 19th, 2019, police and army forces repressed a demonstration of people opposed to the coup d'etat and de facto authority headed by Agnes. The demonstrators were demanding the return of democratic institutionality and the reinstatement of former President Evo Morales to his constitutional functions. Ten people lost their lives and 47 were wounded by shots fired by uniformed officers. In 2021, the interdisciplinary group of Indian experts, the GIEI, investigated the events of the 2019 crisis and determined that massacres occurred in Senkata and Sakaba. A judicial process is currently underway with several members of the military charged with crimes of conspiracy, sedition and terrorism. Evo Morales joined in the tribute to the victims who through Twitter denounced quote, that the intellectual and material authors of these crimes and human rights violations are benefiting from impunity. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu. There is no podcast up there, however. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140. And from 5 p.m. to midnight at either 606060 or 6165. At their website, you can stream the English version at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Standard Time. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet, like listeners in Willits, Calpella, and Scotia, California did this week. Many, many, many thanks. We will conclude with France 24. A.B. de Bonafina, one of the founders of the Mothers of the Plaza de Mayo in Argentina, passed away this week. The U.K. Supreme Court ruled that the people of Scotland cannot hold a referendum on independence. In Brazil, Bolsonaro was rejected in his bid to have election results be invalidated. France 24 She's been praised as a light in the dark night of Argentina's military dictatorship. Ebe de Bonafini died this week at the age of 93. She was one of the founders of the Mothers of Plaza de Mayo, a group of women who demanded the whereabouts of the tens of thousands abducted during Argentina's brutal military regime in the 1970s and 80s. Bonafini became a controversial figure in later years for her radical opposition to U.S. governments, a corruption scandal, and her involvement in partisan politics. Circling the Plaza de Mayo in Buenos Aires, just as Ebe de Bonafini had done thousands of times. These Argentinians are paying homage to one of their country's greatest icons in its struggle against dictatorship. For nearly half her life, de Bonafini fought to get justice for the disappeared 30,000 victims of Argentina's brutal military regime that ruled from 1976 to 1983. 
1977, one year after a military coup, her two sons and daughter-in-law were kidnapped. Ebe found herself among a small group of women gathered in front of the presidential palace, demanding information on the mounting numbers of missing Argentinians. Stationary protests were banned, so the women began marching in circles around the Plaza de Mayo. From 1979 on, De Bonafini would become the leader of a resistance movement known as the Mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, women draped in white scarves to symbolize the swaddling clothes of their missing children. I always said that lions rose up inside me when they took my children. With the scarf, I feel taller. We're together. I feel like I'm holding my children. Despite the risks, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo gathered every Thursday until the fall of the dictatorship, continuing even after 1983 and the return of democracy. A number of radical positions, such as celebrating the 9-11 attacks and even suspicions of corruption, would eventually tarnish her image and render her a controversial figure, though many Argentinians still honor her as a staunch fighter for justice. A legal blow to the Scottish National Party's hopes of holding another independence referendum next October. As the UK Supreme Court unanimously ruled that power to call a referendum is reserved to the UK Parliament. Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said she respected the court's judgment, but that it threw up questions around democracy within Scotland's devolution settlement. What today's judgment confirms more than anything else is that the only guarantee for Scotland of equality within the British family of nations is through independence. We must and we will find another democratic, lawful and constitutional means by which the Scottish people can express their will. Sturgeon said she would turn the next general election into a de facto vote on splitting from the rest of the UK by campaigning solely on that premise. Meanwhile, the UK Prime Minister welcomed the ruling. I think that the people of Scotland want us to be working on fixing the major challenges that we collectively face, whether that's the economy, supporting the NHS, or indeed supporting Ukraine. Now is the time for politicians to work together. Westminster has repeatedly refused Scotland another referendum. It says the 2014 one, which saw 55% of Scots reject independence, settled the question for a generation. But the SNP says there's now an indisputable mandate due to an independence-supporting majority in the Scottish Parliament and in light of Scotland being forced to leave the EU with the rest of the UK, despite the majority of Scots voting against Brexit. Jair Bolsonaro receives yet another setback, this time from Brazil's superior electoral court, who refused his request to invalidate the results of the presidential election. The Liberal Party filed an appeal to the Electoral Court on Tuesday, claiming the malfunctioning of 280,000 electronic voting machines and stating that these errors cost their candidate his re-election. Incumbent President Bolsonaro lost to Lula da Silva in the election runoff by less than 2%, the narrowest margin in Brazil's history. The Liberal Party pressed for an audit, saying the voting machines were outdated and had an internal bug which affected the election outcome. The electoral court judge issued a stinging ruling rejecting Bolsonaro's demands due to lack of evidence and fining the party €4 million Euros for acting in bad faith. It is a request that is offensive to the democratic rule of law and made in an inconsistent manner with the aim of encouraging criminal and anti-democratic movements. 
Jair Bolsonaro has yet to officially concede the election result, along with his supporters who have been protesting across Brazil following Lula's victory. The outgoing president has authorized the government to begin preparing for the presidential transition. The former left-wing president Lula, who is returning to power, will be inaugurated on the 1st of January. That report and press reviews were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcast, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with a podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 26th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.